Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us here at CBE Denver's podcast, Mutuality Minded. We at CBE Denver seek to advance the gospel by equipping Christians to use their God-given talents in leadership and service, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. We aspire to encourage one another to develop leadership skills and spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body of Christ through the Word of God. During this episode, we will be discussing what mutuality-mindedness looks like in regards to one's calling and identity and women in ministry. Before we get started, though, I want to introduce our, our guest on the podcast today, Professor Dan Steiner. Hello. Thanks what's for having up? me, Taylor. Yeah, what's up? Thank you. <laughs> um, professor Steiner is an assistant professor in training and mentoring at Denver Seminary, where he has taught for nearly five years. He has spent the last 13 years working in churches in Oregon and Colorado, and his passion for equipping people to carry out their calling to Christ in doing the work of ministry in and outside of the local church. So welcome to Mutuality Minded. Yes, yeah, so glad to be here, Taylor. Appreciate yeah, the opportunity. We're so, so excited that you're on the podcast today. Um, and now I heard that you recently wrote a book uh, with um, Professor Bill Klein. Yes. And so uh, could you share a little bit more about what that book is about? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, when I started working at Denver Seminary five years ago, um, I, I never intended to be teaching at a seminary. I've been in pastoral ministry for a number of years. So I was, felt like a fish out of water. I mean, there's overlap between church ministry and seminary work, but I felt like a sure. fish out of water. And I was looking around at who's been here the longest. And Bill Klein had been teaching at the seminary for longer than I'd been alive. Oh, um, man. And so I, I never took his, any of his classes, but I decided to reach out and just ask him, could we get together a couple times a semester just to talk about being a professor? Uh, at that same time, when I was starting the work in the training and mentoring department, um, the curriculum emphasized calling in a significant way. And Bill was also being used as a resource because of the work he had done in his own New Testament work on this topic of calling, addressing it not from a God calls me to a job task or role perspective, which is what we see it often oh, talk, sure. how, how it's often talked about in our culture, um, but more so what it means to, to look throughout the New Testament in particular and see that calling is more often than not referred to as an identity forming term or an idea mm. that we're called to be God's people. So we're bringing this part of the, this, this study into the, the training and mentoring curriculum. And Bill was an expert as a New Testament scholar helping to teach our students. And I was gleaning from that. I gleaned from my mentors in my own MDiv um, uh, experience at the seminary yeah. and calling had, had been a big part of my own story. And so uh, the ways in which my own thinking about calling was recalibrated as it related to um, my work in ministry versus who I am in Christ uh, was such a significant part of my story. Bill had this work in academia. He and I started meeting together. And then one time we're meeting and I looked at him and said, Bill, you want to write a book on this? Um, I've got some perspectives and some things I've been researching related to theology, the theological side of things. You've done a lot of work on the New Testament side of things. I think there's a conversation that needs to be had that hasn't been had in all of the literature on calling, do you want to write a book? And he looked at me and said, yes. So it wasn't quite like proposing yeah. to my wife, <laughs> oh, but, it, well, felt, but it felt pretty intimidating. Here I am, this new academic with Dr. Bill Klein, and he agreed. So we started it on this project, and it's been, um, the manuscript is now at the publisher. It'll be out next April. Um, the title is, What is My Calling? Mm. A Biblical and Theological Exploration of Christian Identity. Yeah, if that doesn't draw you in, then I don't know what will, because... Well, I good. Mean... <laughs> Marketing right here. Please, when, when yeah. it comes out, we want, we want 
want at least five people to buy it. So oh, that's, there you that's go. my hope. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure more than five people will buy it. Well, I mean, good, good. you got one right here. So, yes. <laughs> um, you know, being a Denver, Denver seminary graduate myself, um, who's gone through the training and mentoring program, mm -hmm. I know that this topic of calling is so crucial mm -hmm. to training and mentoring. Um, and we talked about it often then, and you're, I mean, your book is about it now. Mm -hmm. So um, can you differentiate uh, the terms between calling? And you touched on this a little bit already, mm -hmm. calling and vocation yeah. and the difference between the two. Yeah. No, I think <clears throat> I think the the definition of terms is actually a really important part of this whole conversation. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, there, there's a scene in one of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. I don't know, are you familiar with oh, The yes. Princess Bride? It is like one of the greatest movies of all time. Although now I'm, I'm now 40, so aging myself. <laughs> This was one of those cult classic movies back when I was in high school and college. And I, I, I talk about that movie from time to time. And as I'm around younger people, more often than not, they looked at me, look at me with glazed eyes because they don't know this movie. And I think that is actually one of the greatest travesties of all time. So oh, hopefully, man. hopefully the, the, the listeners of this fine podcast, if it's on Netflix, understand. then it'll come back around. Yes. I think <laughs> Disney plus, I think is where it's at. Oh, uh, not right. that I've looked recently, but, um, anyways, <laughs> in, the, in the movie, there's this character, the Vecini who mm -hmm. says this word over and over and over again. Do you know the word that he says over and over again? Which one? Inconceivable. Oh yes. Inconceivable. Yes. In <laughs> every situation he says inconceivable. Inconceivable. So him and, and Fezzik and Indigo are standing at the top of the cliffs of insanity and the man in black is coming up and inconceivable. How can he be chasing us? And, and Indigo looks at him and says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this classic line that, that you keep using this word, but I don't know if you actually know what it means. And I really think that that's a, a fitting metaphor for what's happened with calling and even vocation. Mm -hmm. These terms have become so commonplace and used in so many different ways by different people that do we really understand what we mean when somebody yeah, exactly. says, I have a calling or this is my vocation. What's your vocation? What's your calling? And this is one of the things Bill and I kind of break apart and untangle in the book um, because the word vocation comes from Latin terms, folks, vocare, vocatio, meaning uh, to summon, uh, to call or a voice. And so when, when historically someone like Martin Luther, who is kind of the historical genesis of vocations mm -hmm. um, emphasis, when you go back to the Reformation and the work that he did to say it's not just the religious folk, the priests, the nuns, the monks, and so forth, the official religious folks that have vocations, but it's the blacksmiths, the bakers, the farmers, the miners. Mm -hmm. They all have a vocation, a calling. Sure. Their, their work is significant before the Lord, not just the religious types. And we, we studied, we, we actually have a whole chapter unpacking the history of calling's evolution. But you fast forward to where we're at today in the 21st century, and a lot of times calling gets used um, kind of in a, a haphazard. I don't, mm -hmm. don't want to minimize people's stories because oftentimes it's deeply attached to someone's personal experience. I feel called to seminary. I feel called to become a pastor. I have a calling to do youth ministry. That was my own story. Um, or I'm called to a particular location, this particular church or this mm -hmm. country. So calling gets attached in that way. Vocation has that underpinning of a voice, a calling, a summons, because if there's a caller or if there's a calling, there has to be a caller. Yep. So if somebody says they have a vocation, can I, can I just like snap that. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's <laughs> in, that, that's that's a really important piece. Well, side note, mm. um, there there's a lot of conversation bubbling up and being had in secular literature in in spaces where people are talking about calling, and yet that's one of the points that I think needs to be brought up. 
you're adopting language that's from a faith community, but you're not attaching it to a collar. It's more about a life purpose or mm-hmm. some sense of meaning and significance, yep. which I think is being adopted because that's functionally how Christians have started using calling. It's not so much about the collar as much as it is mm. my own sense of well-being, purpose, significance. And I attach this word calling to a particular job or a task or a role because I want to be justified in why I'm going to go to seminary. I'm called to seminary. Why would you go be a pastor? Well, I'm called to be a pastor. And I think there's a lot of unintentional attachment um, related to significance and identity Mm. and meaning. And this calling term gets wrapped up in that. So the vocation term kind of comes alongside as a sidecar. So pastors have callings, missionaries have callings, but quote unquote, ordinary people, they've got vocations. My vocation is my Mm -hmm. job. And usually when people are referring to vocations, it's some sense of, you know, a a good humanitarian work or Mm -hmm. something that is noble. We don't think of, you know, a a, a menial task as being a vocation, but it's, I'm going to go and do nonprofit work. That's my vocation. Um, Even then we have vocation schools. And so there's other ways in which our culture refers to certain jobs as vocations. So all that to say, when you look at these two terms, I think we got to do some untangling to say, what do we really mean when we say calling? What is it that we're attaching that to? What are we, as Christians, using to substantiate our Mm -hmm. use of a term that is in Scripture, that has a deep biblical and theological meaning behind it? And have we become, when I say have we, I think we have, have we become more influenced by our culture Mm. and how we use calling and it's become a more culturally conditioned idea than a true biblically anchored idea yeah no that's so great and i i agree i mean i think we're seeing too and and you touched on this too of how often culture does dictate how we interpret things Mm -hmm. um and to be biblically sound doesn't mean to separate ourselves from interpreting within culture. No, absolutely not. Because that's not right either. A fish doesn't know it's wet. Exactly. And we swim in the cultural waters we're in, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, why these conversations are so helpful, because Mm -hmm. we have to, in some ways, find ways to step outside of that cultural milieu Mm -hmm. and go back to uh, the baseline, back to Scripture, and say, what does the Bible say, and how is that directing? Or in this case, how might that help us recalibrate our understanding of what it means to have a calling or to be called as God's people. Absolutely. And you mentioned this term caller, and I wanted to just probe that a little deeper. Um, How do you intentionally, when you're interacting with people and they're talking about calling, talking about vocation, talking about these words, Mm -hmm. how do you emphasize and encourage them to um, seek the caller rather than just the call? Yeah. That's a great question. I I think a big part of, of distinguishing between those two is being honest about what has really captivated our attention when it comes to using calling the language, calling language in the ways that we have. So when we attach calling to a job or a task or a role, what we're placing an emphasis on is what myself as the, what I as the individual am doing and the, the tasks that I'm putting my hands to, the effectiveness that I have, what I'm producing. And, and this is something that's just part of being in that cultural milieu that we're in. So much of our our own culture today emphasizes a connection between identity and activity, Mm. identity and job. Uh, Pew and Gallup in particular, and we talk about this in our book, there's some studies that they have done over a number of years um, connecting the dots between people's sense of identity and worth and their jobs. And for for over two decades, I can't remember if it's Gallup or, or Pew that have 
um, have concluded that 60 to 70% of people attach their identity to their work. And then Gallup, the other, whichever one it was, um, did a, a similar sort of a study and actually found that the more education a person has, the more likely they are to attach their identity to their work. So somebody who has a high school diploma only, say something around 30% of them attach their identity to their work, and it increases bachelors, and then you get to postgraduate work, and it's something like 70 to 80% of people attach their identity to their work. So there is a clear connection between our identity and that which we do. So that's just our culture at large. Now we bring in this sanctified, spiritualized version of that, mm. and we use this idea of calling to attach to a job or a task or a role because we're finding our significance in that. We, it, who wouldn't want to find significance in their work? Sure. But what we've done is we've used this calling term, and instead of focusing on the caller mm-hmm. and, and wrapping our minds around what it means for him to dictate the terms mm-hmm. of that calling, we've created our own terms. And we've mm. said calling is about a job or a task or a role. It's individualized. It's hidden. Go find your calling as though it's a needle in a haystack. You have to find that one thing that you were meant to do. I mean, these are all narratives that just bleed of our culture. Oh, for but we sure. we don't find them in Scripture when you actually pull apart all of the verses that refer to calling in this way. And so if, if we're going to separate those two things out, we've got to be willing to own the ways in which our culture has shaped our understanding and use of calling. But then secondly, when we realize that it is more culturally shaped than biblically shaped, mm-hmm. What does it mean to go back to the caller and say, Lord, you are the caller. What does it mean for me to have a calling to you in relationship with you, to be a part of a collective people who have an identity as your people? And that now sets the terms for my identity. I am in Christ as a group of collective people, Mm -hmm. the body of Christ. That's now shaping and framing my my, my sense of identity. Then... The things that I do, the jobs, the tasks, the roles that I'm a part of, rather than seeing those in terms of calling, I see those in terms of desire, gifting, opportunity, Mm -hmm. discernment, other really important terms that we do see in Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy 2, anyone who aspires to the office of overseer desires a good thing. That's what Mm -hmm. Paul told Timothy. I've had students sitting in my office saying, Dan, confession time, I lied on a scholarship application that asked me for my calling to ministry to come to seminary. I lied. I made something up because I actually don't have a calling, but I felt like I had to, so I made something up. Is it okay that I just want to be here and I feel like I should go to seminary to get educated, to be a pastor because people have affirmed that I'm good at preaching or teaching or leading and I just want to do this? Is that okay? Like, yeah. First of all, please don't worry about that lie. God forgives sins. I don't even know if that was a sin. Sorry that you were put in that place. Uh But let's talk about that desire. Yeah. Because Paul actually affirmed that to Timothy and now to us as the broader body of Christ, that it's okay to desire leadership. You don't have to have this mystical calling experience to go into pastoral ministry or to become an elder. Mm -hmm. So when we start putting those pieces alongside one another, that does place a different emphasis on the caller that what that calling is, is into relationship and into Mm -hmm. belonging and into identity in that sense. And the tasks, the jobs, the roles, the activities that I put my hands to Mm -hmm. Those aren't my calling. That's an outflow. Or I should engage those in light of the calling that I have to Christ. Oh, and I love that differentiation. Uh, and that is so key of the activities and the tasks are not the same as the call. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they are an outpouring because of the call. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it's, I, there's so many people that I think when they come to this term of calling and, oh, is this, is this what's happening? Is this what I'm being called to? Um, and they're like, well, I haven't had any experience in this. Mm-hmm. And so differentiating that, how freeing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that word right there is so important. It, there is freedom. A biblically and theologically anchored use of calling mm-hmm. is going to lead to the freedom of God's people in Christ and will increase the gospel witness of the church in the world. That's our thesis statement for our book. Yeah. That there, it's about freedom. It's not about restriction and wondering, is there this hierarchy of people that have callings versus those that don't have callings or those that have more significant roles in the church versus those that don't? I mean, you think of the metaphor of the body. The eye, what is the eye or the, the mouth or the foot to say to another body part? I don't mm-hmm. need you. Everyone is important. Some are going to be more, quote unquote, glamorous or have more external showing or different responsibilities, but they all need one another. Yeah. And, and functionally speaking, calling, the way we use calling has created that hierarchy that there are those that have more significant roles versus those that don't. Mm. And I've sat with many, many of those that quote unquote don't have a calling, at least don't perceive that they have a calling in this culturally defined way. And they feel that lack of significance or that hierarchy. And mm-hmm. I think that's something we need to be honest about. We need to put on the table and say, how did we get here? And how do we untangle that so that we can see that we're actually all on the same playing field? We're not trying to minimize and diminish the importance of pastors or those that mm-hmm. have traditionally in our time attached calling language too. What we're trying to do is raise the significance of everybody else to say, we all have different roles to play, Mm -hmm. male, female, pastor, parishioner, whatever the differences may be, we're all on the same playing field because we're all in Christ. And that levels the playing field with different giftings and opportunities and desires to express that in our different circumstances. Mm. And that actually is a great segue into one of my questions I had mm-hmm. for you, um, which you kind of touched on, but I for sure I think would be really great for listeners to hear to this too. But what is how is the topic of calling as an identity something worth discussing for advocates for biblical mutuality? Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's actually the question that's driving yeah. why we're even having this conversation. Um, yeah, there's a couple answers to that question. First, I, I've one of the things I've done in writing this book has done far more research on resources and books about calling. And there came across over 90 books published in the last 20 years alone that oh have the goodness. word call, calling or called <laughs> in the title or subtitle. I didn't read them all word for word. I've got a whole shelf in my office that is dedicated to my calling books. Wow. Uh, and there's, there's different ways in which calling is emphasized. Majority of it is related to jobs, tasks, and roles in particular with ministry. And, and there, there's, we, we can distinguish between a couple different types of calling resources. There are some that are written explicitly by men to men, and there's an assumed um, uh, theology of, of roles in ministry and what those limitations are or aren't based upon a, a complementarian perspective. And so you have men writing to men, assuming that calling is about pastoral ministry and it's only for men. Well, recently there's been some other resources that have come out on the other end of the spectrum, written by women about mm-hmm. this idea of calling. And I'm called to ministry, and I can have a calling to be a pastor or so forth or be a leader. And I, I understand the sentiment behind that. What I think is, is is missed, though, is there's a bad theology already at play when these books written by men to men about calling are about pastoral ministry, about leadership within the church and so forth. And we're applying that same theology inadvertently, but now saying women have a calling. So it's not as though women shouldn't be pastors and teachers and leaders and have every opportunity for every role and so forth. 
but we're taking a bad theology and now applying it to to advance a different agenda. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think the first thing we need to do is say, let's step back and and uh, dare I say, let's not even attach calling yep. to pastoral ministry and to mm-hmm. roles and tasks and so forth. Let's get away from saying God's called women to be mothers and to be wives. I think there's a lot of danger in how that language has been used uh, for those that either don't get married or can't have children. And somehow oh, they sure. feel insignificant or, or inferior because they're not able to, quote unquote, fulfill the calling that they supposedly have. So that's the first thing. I think we need to back away from the calling language. Um, the second thing, though, is for those that are in leadership roles, that are pastors and teachers and leaders as women, when your identity is anchored in Christ, that is going to color and shape your ministry in powerful ways. Mm, amen. Uh, there's <laughs> there's a, a theologian named Ray Anderson. Um, since passed away, he taught at Fuller for a number of years. We interact with him at length in the book because he has some really interesting insights about calling. His own story, he was a farmer turned pastor turned professor. Goes through this his own journey. And the idea of calling becomes a, a significant theme in different places. He, he talks about how, how um, a person's baptism is their introduction into ministry. That's their calling. That's their, mm-hmm. into the, not just into the body of Christ, but into the ministry of Christ. And he talks about how the direction of our calling is not earthward, it's upward, so to speak. It's Christ's mm-hmm. ministry. We're called to Christ and to participate in the ministry that he is doing. And one of the, uh, one of the important implications of that is if I am a pastor or a leader, this isn't my ministry. This is Christ's ministry. Why? Because my calling is to him. And everybody has this calling to Christ. And the particular shape of my ministry might look like pastoral ministry, but it's not my ministry. Therefore, I don't have the pressures of having to meet every single need. Therefore, my identity is not shaped and framed by the, the changing, shifting realities of my job or the responsibilities in front of me. Mm-hmm. That, that's, a, that's a really significant directional shift because having been in pastoral ministry for over a decade... And my own story was shaped by this idea of calling. I had a calling to be a youth pastor and then to be a youth pastor at a particular church. And I was there for almost a decade. And then I was fired from that job. And then there was or pressured to resign because of a perceived lack of passion for my job, which is church speak for you're fired. But that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But I, one of the hardest things of coming out of that that situation was I had no idea who I was mm. because for a decade, I mean, I went and got an undergraduate degree, then got a job as a youth pastor. Why? Because I had a calling to be a youth pastor. I thought I was going to die a youth pastor and die the youth pastor at this particular church. And all of a sudden I now find myself without that job and I had no idea who I was. Wow. Uh, it, it was, it was one of the most uh, terrifying and wonderful seasons of life. Because it shook me up, it ultimately led us to Denver, to go to Denver Seminary, to meet some great mentors and and teachers that helped reframe my understanding of calling. And that's partly why I get passionate about this and why there's a a desire to advocate for this understanding of calling, because calling is an identity-shaping reality. I believe God intended that, as it's used in His Word, that we are called to be the holy people of God. We're called to be His people. Mm. And that then colors and gives texture to everything that we do. So that as life changes and circumstances change, you lose a job, you lose a loved one, you move from one place to another, your calling actually never changes. It remains the same. You're anchored in Christ. That shapes and frames your identity. Therefore, whatever you do, wherever you find yourself, you can have confidence that you can enter into that as one who is in Christ because that's your calling. Mm -hmm. We live in a world, I mean, we're still in the midst of COVID. We've got masks, we're we're unmasked, but we have masks and all of that that still goes with that. 
But one of the things that this COVID pandemic situation has shown us in the last year is the givens that we thought were given are no longer given. And so jobs are not secure. Living in one place for a lifetime is not secure. Life itself is not secure. And when we anchor our calling to anything that is shifting or anything that can potentially change. It's going to fall by the wayside. It's going to fall by the wayside. Yeah. And when we attach calling to that, we inadvertently but so easily attach our identity to that. Mm-hmm. So when a loved one passes away, we lose a job, we move to another location. If our identity, even inadvertently, has been anchored in that changing reality, we're going to go through an identity crisis. We're going to depression, frustration, mm-hmm. questions, what, what am I worth or what am I supposed to be doing and so forth. But if our calling is in Christ... As life changes, we can still be steady and sure because that reality of being in Christ doesn't change. So for those who are in ministry, whether male or female as pastor, my, my biggest encouragement would be your calling is not to your church. Your calling is not to the task of preaching or to counseling. Mm-hmm. Your calling is to Christ. And those activities that you are compelled to do, Paul even uses that language, I'm compelled to preach. I'm gifted to preach. Do that in light of your calling, not the other way around. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like a motivation factor too. Uh, Oh, absolutely. Whenever your identity is tied with, um, either your job or to God, I mean, it really does play out in motivation and why Mm -hmm. you're doing your why, if you will. Yeah. Or think of for, for those, not even in leadership, but this conversation expands to anybody in any job, any economic situation. There's, it's interesting when we talk Mm -hmm. about callings, those jobs that are supposed callings, Those are the, I mean, there's certain jobs that people say I'm called to, and then there's others that are not. Mm. And it's a really interesting kind of a sociological dynamic of why is it that someone would not say, well, I'm called to be, um, for lack of better terms, or just generalize, a garbage collector. Um, Why why would I not be called to that, but I feel called to something grand and noble and that is lifted up in society, and people will pat me on my back because of the work that I do. There's ways in which um, this equals the playing field across economic strata uh, to be able to to say it doesn't matter how much money you make or don't make. What if you're unemployed? I found myself after that situation, I was mm-hmm. unemployed for over a year. And I can tell you going going to a, a wedding in which I ran into guys that I had uh, not seen since high school. Hey, Dan, what are you up to these days? Ah, uh, in between opportunities. I mean, in that moment, yeah. I'm faced with just how much of my own personal sense of worth was wrapped up in having a particular job. And now I don't have a job, therefore I'm less significant. Theologically, that's horrible. (laughs) But yet practically speaking, that's how we operate. Mm -hmm. We attach identity and significance to what we do. And when we don't have that or we have less than others, we feel that sense of insignificance. This calling conversation raises the tide and says, Mm -hmm. no, your significance and worth is not in what you do or how much money you make or don't make, whether you have a job or don't have a job, whether you have a home or don't have a home. Whatever that is, in Christ, your identity is anchored in that. Therefore, your value and significance is anchored in that. Mm, Absolutely. And I just want to thank you, too, for sharing parts of your story with that, too, of how personal this understanding of calling has been for you um, and how freeing I know that will be for people listening, because I know many people have gone through seasons of being unemployed Mm -hmm. and having to face with the reality of, what, what am I putting my identity in? Yeah. <laughs> what, what am I putting my focus on? Um, but also of, um, not being called, if you will, mm-hmm. air quotes to the church, yeah. like uh, to be a leader in the church. Maybe you're just, uh, 
you have, you're called to a different vocation that's not necessarily mm-hmm. a ministry, that doesn't mean you can't live out the call the Lord has for you mm-hmm. in a different location. So I, I think hearing your story and hearing that tangibility to mm-hmm. it um, is just so encouraging. Mm. Um, so thank you. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, God redeems stories. And, and I love, Absolutely. and, I, and the, the more I tell my story and I encourage others to tell it, I think that's part of what hopefully maybe this will even bring up is for us to hear each other's stories. Mm. So much of this our book and, and the work I've done on this topic has been shaped by my, my students' stories, by those that have been a part of the 5280 Fellows Program here in Denver as I've walked with young professionals who are wrestling with the same concept. The more I sit with other people's stories, I realize there's a shadow side to claim. Yes. There's a shadow side that mm-hmm. we can't just name it and claim it. No, I, I graduated yeah. from seminary. I have an MDiv degree. Therefore, I should have a full-time paid position with a retirement plan, medical benefits awaiting me on the other side. That's not always the case for our seminary students, yet they wrestle with this idea of, I was Mm -hmm. called to be a pastor, yet I don't have the job. Or those that are working in the marketplace or nonprofit world, Mm. I I, I don't have a calling. I had a conversation with someone one time and they pounded their fist. I don't have a calling. I was like, yes, you do. It's to Christ. No, I don't have a calling. (laughs) Well, what, what did that person mean? They don't have a calling in the terms that they had seen lifted up in their church. And that Mm -hmm. when people have a calling, we bring them on stage and we lay hands on them and send them out to another part of the world Mm -hmm. or to go pastor at another church. But we don't bless educators or healthcare workers or baristas. Mm. And baristas, that's one of the most sacred jobs in all of the world. We we could go on and on of the types of work that are sacred, not because the work itself is necessarily more sacred than other work. But it's because the one who is working is doing it in Christ. Therefore, they're bringing mm. that sacredness to that work because they're doing it as one who is in yeah. Christ. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking about sacred work, too, of ra- random story of where I'm at. Uh, mm-hmm. We have one car right now. <laughs> oh, And so my yes. husband and I are, are waiting for our other car to get out of the shop. Uh, so I've had to Uber mm. a lot this mm-hmm. week. Um, and, you know, I feel like that is a sacred calling mm-hmm. because you are engaging with people and crazy ways and Mm -hmm. getting to have conversations. You were with that person uninterrupted for however long of a time Mm -hmm. that ride is. Um, and it it dawned on me, I was like, wow, there is so many opportunities to just really get to hear people's stories. Yeah. 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 One of my, my mentors in seminary, Brian, uh, who who was foundational in, in helping me recalibrate my thinking about calling one of the phrases that he shared with me that's always stuck is that it's not the what that matters as much as the why and the how. Mm. The, the what, you know, the thing, the task, the, you know, whether it's preaching or driving Uber, the what doesn't matter as much as why you do it, what's your motivation behind why you do it and how the manner in which you go about doing it. You know, I've, I've been around, I probably at different times have been a pastor who had a title. Mm-hmm. I've been around others who are pastors that have that title that you would think just because they have the title that everything they do is holy and sacred. I've been around some pastors who have done some pretty unholy and unsacred things. Mm. And yet I've also been around some who are serving in a restaurant, who are working security at a front door somewhere that do their work far more sacredly or even pastorly Mm. than those who have the title. And I think that's part of the just what needs to happen with this conversation is we need to be honest. The title doesn't give you greater clout or importance or significance. Again, Mm -hmm. not to diminish the important work of pastors. Don't ever want to diminish that. Oh, sure. Yeah. What we're going to do is say there are others who are doing just mm-hmm. as important work. And it's not even paid work. Mm-hmm. How many, the number of times I've, I've heard a woman say, I'm just a mom or I'm just a wife, mm-hmm. as though that is less than in importance in, in work for somebody who's a stay-at-home mom. Or on the flip side, what about a stay-at-home dad? 
Yeah. Not all stay-at-home parents are moms. There's also dads. I've been there for a year. Mm -hmm. It's a sacred work. So just because you don't get a paycheck for the work doesn't mean the work itself can't also be sacred. Why? Because it's not the what that matters so much as the why and the how. And when the why and the how are anchored in Christ, the what is going to be that much more significant because Mm -hmm. it's influenced by what it means to be holy and generous and humble and compassionate and all the things that Christ was that we are to be in him. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, is what Paul told the Ephesians, Ephesians mm. 4, 1 through 3, with all gentleness, kindness, humility, and in love, showing tolerance for one another. Uh, I love how none of those talk about a specific tangible activity. It's all character. No. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and what's interesting, so when he says walk in a manner worthy, that mm-hmm. word for worthy in the Greek, it's, t- it's a word that's taken out of the marketplace. It describes a scale. You see, so you have different mm-hmm. weights. So if you have this calling in Christ on one end of the scale... What is the equitable, what, what's going to hold that with equity on the other side of the scale? It's not a job or a task or a role. It's character. It's who I am in Christ. It's mm-hmm. gentleness, kindness, humility, love. Shocker. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. This is how the world will know you're my disciples. Why you're in me and how you are in me. Why your love mm-hmm. for one another. That's what I think we need to emphasize in this calling conversation is how are we expressing these qualities? Mm. How are, this is the manner of living as God's holy people in whatever we do, wherever we're at, paid or unpaid, public, private, whatever it is, there's an equality there because we're all in Christ and that's the expectation. Oh, I love that. Yes. (laughs) So my last question for Uh you is how would you encourage Christians today to embody biblical mutuality through one's calling? Yeah. I think just, we need to see ourselves as one in Christ. That was, that was Jesus's high priestly prayer. May they be one. I think that's, we've got to get away from the hierarchical who's above authority or am I under authority and so forth. And there's, there's some really good resources. Actually, actually. Yeah, share them. If there's a book, this just came out. I'm almost done reading it. Um, Beth Allison Barr, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Um, She's a historian. I think at Baylor is where she teaches. And she shares some of her own story. Her husband was a youth pastor and um, lost his job as a youth pastor because of mm. they wanted to advocate for for women in leadership roles at their church and were ultimately quietly ushered out. But she she goes back and studies. Um, she's a in particular a historian of sermons uh, in the medieval era, mm. and so she goes back and shows how this wasn't an issue back then, but it's become more of an issue in our recent days. So I think in some ways understanding the history of how this has developed, we kind of believe that hierarchy is gospel truth in that this is God's ordained way. Um, Jesus and John Wayne is another book that recently came mm. out that does another historical study in particular of how, um, how, how this hierarchy has developed in, in America in the last 50, 60 years. So I think having that awareness, you know, everybody doesn't need to go read all these books and become a historian themselves. But I think just understanding how this has developed in our own culture and the oh, ways in which sure. not just calling has been culturally conditioned, but even our understanding of gender roles and what a, you know, quote unquote, a woman's place or a man's place is mm-hmm. in the home or in the church or in society. I think we need to be honest about how, how that's been culturally conditioned and then go back to scripture, do the good work of exegesis and find experts like Bill Klein and others that are, are historically anchored and biblically sound to help us understand how these cultural realities hold alongside the biblical text and then be willing to enter into uh, enter into hard conversations with one another and listen. When I was a former, part of my story, a former compliment, hyper-complementarian, mm-hmm. I never listened to the other side, let alone did I listen to other people's stories. And one of the, the hardest things, and you know, I guess more vulnerability here is 
the reality of what that, how that played out in my own marriage with my wife. And even to mm. this day, the residue of living within a hierarchical relationship, the, the things that we still struggle with and the things that she struggles with that I'm even still now just coming to understand as part of being, me being willing to listen to her story and hear the reality that this isn't just an abstract idea where I can argue doctrinally and pick apart verses. No, there's a ground for reality of how that way of thinking and that theology has played itself out mm. in real people's lives and stories. And we need to listen to those stories. That doesn't become authoritative in and of itself, mm-hmm. but we need to be willing to listen to those stories and then consider what, what do I do with that mm-hmm. in light of the biblical text and in light of this desire for oneness, what does mutual submission look like within a marriage relationship? Submit to one another in Christ. Mm. Me as a husband and her as a wife. That's that's sticky and that can get messy, especially if you're used to a different way. Oh, You've sure. never lived, yeah. lived otherwise. So, And I'm to use your own words, mm-hmm. too, it's taking a step back to even realize that it is residue. Oh, that, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's wow. being honest and saying, let's move forward mm-hmm. with a goal towards oneness, mm-hmm. even when it's hard and even when mm-hmm. um, we don't know what that looks like. But let's let's pursue that together. Absolutely. Both in marriage, but in the church, church yeah. communities. Well, I mean, talk about being the bride of Christ, right? So, Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much yeah. for being able on our podcast today. This has just been such an encouraging conversation. All right. Well, th- I, I appreciate the opportunity, Taylor. Yeah. Um, and thanks to you all who've been listening in with us today at CBE Mutuality Minded. If you want more information about CBE Denver or would like to engage in further dialogue about topics we discuss here or... Um, just want to know more info in general, check out our website at cbedenver.com or visit our Facebook and Instagram pages for more information. So wherever you may be, whether it's driving to work, hitting the gym, cooking at home, thanks for joining us here and remember to stay mutuality minded. Until next time.